following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I think I've mentioned to you before that uh, when I'm on long road trips, I like to play games with the road to make time pass more quickly. And my game all has to do with mileage markers. And so everything's kind of paced out and measured and certain markers are very important. Now, for example, most of you have made that trip probably many times from Columbia up 26 to 385. Well, that's one of my games. Uh, how, exactly what time am I going to get to 385 and have that last stretch home? Well, that's what we should do on special occasions in our lives. God gives us uh, road markers in our pilgrimage. Uh, the Old Covenant people had their road markers. They had um, uh, the three annual festivals, which actually marked out their pilgrimage from the deliverance from captivity toward the coming of the Messiah and the hope that was in Him. And the three great festivals from Passover to Pentecost to Festival of the Booths. But then God gave them a monthly time marker uh, with the new moons to draw their attention to himself. But they had that weekly time marker as well of the Sabbath one day in seven. Now, as Zach mentioned, we have one holy day, getting 53 of them this year. And that holy day is a very important time marker in our pilgrimage. It's also an oasis. It's where we can draw aside on our pilgrimage and, and be refreshed. But there's other markers in God's providence in our lives as well. And we've mentioned birthdays as one of those um, times when it's very profitable for us to look back on the past year, to look forward. Uh, and of course, New, New Year should function that way for us. It's fun with all the fireworks and those that are young enough to stay up late and whatever it means for the ball to fall. Uh, watch football, it's a lot more interesting. But anyway, we have those things. But above all, uh, New Year's is a great time to look back in reflection on what God has done for us, in us, and look forward as we are in our pilgrimage with uh, uh, goals and anticipation. But this morning, as you look forward to 2023, I want to speak about one thing that's a bit dark, and that is Whatever else happens in your life in 2023, I can guarantee you one thing. I can promise you this morning, one thing is going to happen in your life in 2023. And that's trial and affliction. It is absolutely part of God's work in our lives and our pilgrimage. Not one of us, from the littlest ones of you, you will have your trials and your afflictions, your things that uh, you're going to push back against or you don't get what you want or you might you know, have a serious illness or whatever. Uh, to the most mature amongst us, regardless how sanctified we are, every one of us in 2023 is going to have afflictions. So I said last week, uh, Job 14 is a very important um, time marker for us then uh, in New Year's. <clears throat> For it's, it sets before us God's school of affliction. Now, in the flow of the argument of the book of Job, this is Job's last speech in the first cycle. Begins in chapter 12. 
uh, where he um, once again asserts his uh, innocence and the, the foolish counsel of the brothers in chapter 13, he, beautiful description, uh, both from general revelation and God's sovereignty, that it's not just the wicked who suffer in this life, that God's sovereign in those demonstrations. And uh, yet, uh, Job wants vindication. So you know in the, in the end of 13, he's, he's asked for a hearing with God. Either he could come in as the, the plaintiff and set his case out. He'd come in as defendant and God set his case out. But he longs for his case to be heard. He longs for uh, God to take his hand off of him. It, it lies heavy upon him uh, in his pilgrimage. Well, essentially what he does in the first part of chapter 14 is he is giving arguments. He's, he's pleading with God. He's pleading the, the frailty of our lives physically uh, and spiritually. That he's not making an excuse for sin, but he said, we're sinners, Lord, and you look on us with such intensity. He, he asked for rest, for deliverance. He recognizes that um, death is, is something that is coming to him. He expects death before he's vindicated, before men. And he speaks then about that, uh, the, the finality and irreversibility of death, both illustrating from um, man in comparison to a tree and to a dried up river stream or lake bed. But even at the end of that discussion of death, he, he uses language that intimates something else. In verse uh, 12, that he, a man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. In other words, as long as this age is, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. I find this to be a very strange phrase in the Old Testament to describe death. It's a phrase that Paul and our Savior often used. Our Savior used it in the case of Lazarus. Paul used it in the passage that we read. And the New Testament describes death as sleep to, to point to the fact that it is but a stage from which God will awaken us at the return of Christ. And so with that intimation, it seems to me, a little hope that begins to arise, and we're going to see a growth of this, more clearly in chapter 16, very clearly in chapter 19. Remember, we've already read that Job longed for an umpire, a mediator between him and God. Well, here, in beginning in verse 13, uh, Job will describe now the hope of life after death. But then we see, often it's the case with Job, and it's your case too, isn't it? We all have some level of spiritual schizophrenia. You can be up and and rejoicing in God's blessing, and suddenly the dark clouds rolled in, and woe am I. Um, uh, and that happens with Job. Uh, as his faith grows, uh, it, it, it springs forth, and yet it will fall back a bit. But the, the trajectory in Job's testimony in life in this book is onward and upward. So we continue as we look at chapter 14 in terms of this year that God uses our afflictions to bring us greater knowledge of ourselves and our end and to recognize that life apart from the mercy of God is futile and hopeless. In these pleas of Job, we've gone to the school of affliction. And these are lessons that God's teaching us so that we'll have greater knowledge of ourselves and our ends and to cause us to recognize that life apart from the mercy of God is futile and hopeless. So we've looked at the, the futility 
of uh, life and the certainty of death. And so we come this morning to two things. Uh, in God's school of affliction, he teaches us to long for and expect life after death. He reminds us that life apart from the mercy of God is indeed desperate. So in this next paragraph, 13 to 17, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that in our school of affliction, as we're in our frailties, as we're so aware of our weaknesses, um, there grows in us, on the basis of scriptural promise, a hope of something else. This is what Job expresses. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. For now you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag. And you wrap up my iniquity. As Job labors under this intense school of trial, the weight of God, the darkness, the feeling that God is his enemy, uh, understanding the reality of death, he now looks at death in the grave as the deliverance from the wrath of God. You see, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, Sheol, here is the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. So Job is recognizing that once he dies and is buried, he will be delivered from the wrath of God. Now that's the great confidence that he has. He, some commentators talk about what Job thinks, like the Greeks, he's going to wander around in this dark sphere of, of, uh, of whatever. But no, uh, as we'll see here, he recognized that death was a release from the wrath of God because death was the entrance into the presence of God. He now expresses this reality of why he used the word sleep. He said, conceal me, set a limit for me, remember me. Now, perhaps you'll notice that uh, this word remember, when it's used of God, is a word of compassion and saving grace. It is a covenant expression. So the children of Israel uh, languishing in Egypt, and it says that God remembered them. And when God remembers his people, that he's not forgotten us. Boys and girls, can God forget anything? No, he's not forgotten us. But it means now he's going to act toward us out of compassion and grace and deliverance. So he says, yes, there's a time set for my wrath, for your wrath against me. He doesn't understand why, but he knows that the grave will be a transition and that the limits of God's wrath and God then will remember him. And how does God remember him? Well, he asked it rhetorically, if a man dies, will he live again? Well, some would say no. But you, I think he answers the question in the next clause. All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. So he's headed toward the grave. He's under all of this oppression. He's waiting to go to the grave because he's expecting what? A change to come. Now, what is that change? Well, the word used here is a word that's used primarily for change of clothing to put on that which is better. So it's used of Joseph when he puts off his prison garments and is dressed to be the vice 
uh, Jarent, uh, the prime minister under Pharaoh. It's used when Naaman brings ten changes of clothes, very expensive changes of clothes to give to Elisha. You see, it's a change from uh, impoverished dress to very rich and, and wealthy dress. And I believe that this is the significance here. A change is coming, uh, says Job. And that change is that his soul uh, is going to be delivered uh, from um, the bondage of the body, of the corruption of the body, of whatever the causes of this wrath of God that is on him, and is going to enter into the presence of God. Now, he perhaps also by that language anticipates what he will say in chapter 19, and that is the change will also take place at the very end of the age when Christ returns, as we read there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's expecting a death transformation. It's so well expressed in our catechism, 37, short of catechism. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. By the way, just in passing, this is why we strongly teach strongly against cremation. Uh, the body's been redeemed as well as the soul. The person has been redeemed. The body remains in union with Christ. And this is why throughout the Bible... A burial has been a very important part of the confession of faith, of hope of the resurrection from Abraham to Joseph to Jacob, straight through uh, Scripture. So this is the change that Job is anticipating. Now he gives two grounds for this hope that has arisen in his heart. And the first ground is the nature of God. Uh, in verse 15, uh, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of of your hands. Now earlier he asked God to call or he would call upon God and that would have to do with the judgment. He wants to come before God the judge and lay out his case. But now as he thinks about this change he says God is going to summon me graciously into his presence. You will call he says. You will call. You will summon and I will answer. Uh, my soul will leap with joy into the presence of God. Why? Because God longs for the work of his hands. What a remarkable expression. In our early prayer, you know, I talked about the fact that God in his wisdom uh, chose us in Christ, gave us to Christ, redeemed us in Christ, regenerated us for Christ, into union with Christ, with the hope of glory. This is... We are the work of God's hands. You are the work of God's hands. Not just physically, you understand. Spiritually. The Psalms often express this. Psalm 138.8, the psalm we use for um, Pastor Groff's ordination. The very conclusion of this. This is David. Uh, this lays the foundation on the basis of the great messianic promise that's in that psalm. And lays the foundation uh, for the bleakness of captivity. Um, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You see, if you are a Christian this morning, you are the work of God's hands. As surely as the creation is the work of God's hands. As surely as everything that takes place in providence is the work of God's hands. You, my redeemed brother and sister, boy and girl, you are the work of God's hands. He who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, remade you in regeneration. And he in your death is calling you. 
calling you into his gracious presence. Now, your affliction should direct your attention there. We're going to die. You know, we don't know that every one of us sitting here will be back next year, at the end of the year. But God's calling us. We don't need to be afraid of death, as we mentioned last week. But the second ground of Job's confidence is what he says about the pardon of his sin. Verses 16 and 17. For now you number my steps and do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you wrap up my iniquity. Some commentators take this, that God is actually counting Job's sins and not remitting them. But Job's already expressed the reality in chapter 10 that God has, uh, has pardoned him uh, from his sins. He says that you should seek my guilt, search after my sin. According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Now he says there's no deliverance. But he knew that in terms of what his friends were saying, that God was not holding him accountable for gross sins, sins of his youth, sins uh, of his life. And that's what he says now, why he, he looks forward to this change. He says God is no longer observing his sins. He knows Job's steps. He knows the way of his life. Why? My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you wrap up my iniquity. And that word wrap up is to plaster over. Now, the Bible uses a number of very graphic descriptions to speak to us of pardon. We have some in Psalm 103. Delightful phrase, as far as the east is from the west, so far my sin has been removed from me. And of course, east and west never meet. Um, and that is the, the figure of the uh, expression there. As high as the heavens are above the earth is so high God's compassion for us. And that's what he's saying here. Job knew that his sins would pardon. He didn't know why God was dealing so harshly with him. But in his conscience, he knew he was not being punished for gross sins. His sins have been pardoned. He has a clean conscience before God. That's why he could look death in the face and have hope. His change was coming. God was going to call him into his presence. I hope every one of you here this morning has this confidence about pardoned sin. It's a glorious privilege that God gives to us. That you can say with Job that your sin's wrapped up in a bag and been plastered over. It's been sealed with, with the most remarkable, hardest kind of glue uh, that there is to be remembered no more. Not that God forgets anything, but he's not going to deal with you according to your sin. He's going to deal with you according to grace. And that is this wonderful hope then that every believer has. It'll be brought to our consciences, Lord willing, at the Lord's table. That through the sacrifice of Christ, all of our sins have been pardoned and we are forgiven. It's a glorious truth. But poor Job was overcome again with darkness. And he concludes on a very bleak note, this last of his speeches in the first cycle. But what we derive from that note is, uh, this is the, in Job's case, it wasn't true. But this is truly the case of every unconverted person. As Job expresses here now, life uh, uh, apart from the mercy of God. The life of the self-righteous or the one who seeks to earn his own salvation. 
And what it really describes here, I think, is the desperate nature of death itself. He's talked about this eternal life. Now he comes back to this desperate disease, this nature of death that he describes so graphically. Verses 18 to 22, but the falling mountain crumbles away and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones. Its torrents wash away dust of the earth. You, you see the figure here. This is, these are the things that are the strongest things in creation. And yet just as mountains crumble, rocks fall off. Um, I noticed on YouTube TV they do these Zen moments in between commercials and, and the football game. And uh, they show, the, I think it's the Grand Canyon. And it's just fantastic photographs taken from Google Earth. And th that's what's pictured here, you see, is that uh, that which is most permanent um, is going to crumble. Water, which is what happened in the Grand Canyon at the flood, water will uh, wear away the stones as torrents will wash away dust of the earth. And that topsoil is just wiped away by uh, the, the water, the flooding, never to, to return. That, he says, is the figure. You destroy man's hope. As God in his omnipotence, his awful power can cause a mountain to crumble, can cause earth to be removed, this is what God does to the hope of man. Now what we know is this is the hope of man without Christ. And that's what the Spirit would have us derive from this, was not the true case of Job, but it is the very accurate case of every unconverted person. As surely as a mountain crumbles and wastes away, that person lives apart from God's hope. So what does God do then? Here's the desperate nature, the plight of death. You, verse 20, forever overpower him and he departs. And this word is a change of place. God, by his power, just as he overpowers the mountain, overpowers uh, the, the man, the woman, the boy and girl, and takes them away. Now, again, we have the word change, but now it's the change of his appearance as God sends him away. Now, there can be changes in our appearance as we grow old, but I think particularly this talks about the change of appearance between a living person and a dead person. Probably all of you as adults have been to wakes, and funerals, and you've seen Joe lying there in the casket. I don't care how often they say how it naturally looks. He doesn't, does he? And where do you see it? It's his face. You see, the face bereft, the face that has the person that no longer has a soul, the first place you see that is in his countenance, in his face. It is artificial. There's no life there. And I think that is the significance of the change. It's the, the marked change in appearance when God takes away the soul and one dies. And then he describes the actual reality of death. In the first place, of course, in death, one is oblivious to all that happens in this life. So his sons achieve honor. He does not know it. Or they can become insignificant and he does not perceive it. So death removes us from all the reality uh, of all that's going on in this life. And even though the, right, the wicked can live right up to the point of death and, and uh, have 
no fear of death or judgment. This passage is going to come and God's going to take away their hope. But notice in verse 22, literally it says, Flesh pains him and he mourns only for himself. I think this last verse is describing the reality of the body in the ground. When it says this, he doesn't use the word body. It's translated body in English versions, but it's his flesh that pains him. And it's personifying flesh, giving it to, uh, as if it were a, a living uh, thing there. Uh, what, the, the flesh is rotting away. It is being eaten by worms. That's what he means. That's what happens to the body at death. But then what does he mean when he says of his soul that uh, he mourns only for himself? I think that as I've meditated on this, this is describing the terrible ripping that takes place in death. You see, we were not created by God to have our souls ripped out of our bodies. That's unnatural. As glorious as the change will be in death, our soul, as we read, entering glorified into the presence of God, it's unnatural. The soul is not designed to live apart from this temple. And thus it mourns the reality of death, the separation of soul from body. That's where Job ends up. After this great expression, he gets back to death. It's not that he's denying what he thinks waits for him, but he, he, he gets absorbed once again with the reality of the hopelessness. But you see, it's a hopelessness apart from God's mercy and grace. And we know God's mercy and grace. We've read about it. We have sung about it in Psalm 103 uh, in uh, particular. We know what waits for us as we sing the sands of time. Uh, here at the Lord's table, we're reminded what is ours in Christ Jesus. But you understand that this is exact description of the state of every person who is not converted. And this is the exact end. Their hope will be destroyed by God, regardless of what they hang on to now. The body will rot in the grave. The soul will live apart from the body, mourning its absence from the body as it mourns the torments of God in hell. That is the hopeless condition apart from the redemption, the saving mercy of the Lord God. And so in our school of affliction, they were all going to go to uh, in 2023. God wants us to learn these lessons. He wants us to be mindful of the frailty of life, the futility of it, physical, spiritual frailty, mindful of death, mindful of life after death, aware of the hopelessness of those who are apart from Christ. Now, in a sense, Job's praying here. He's actually speaking to God in much of this. And it's a very important lesson for us in prayer that Job will plead with God his frailty as an argument for deliverance. And that's a very good thing. I think last week we considered a bit Psalm 6, but it's what the psalmist does uh, in a very persuasive way uh, in Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord. My bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord. Rescue my soul. 
Save me because of your loving kindness. There's no mention of you in death. In Sheol or the grave who will give you thanks. I'm weary with my sign. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye is wasted away with my grief. It's become old because of my adversaries. You see, the psalmist isn't complaining here. He's laying out arguments of his frail condition that God might show pity to him. God wants us to learn to do that. We're dealing a lot in Sunday school with not complaining, being content. But it's not complaining. If you take the very sorrows of your life, uh, whether it is your frailty, uh, the fear that Job had expressed earlier, God, I'm not made out of rock. I, I could deny you. Um, uh, the heartbreak of a, a loved one who is unconverted, whatever it might be, we may plead these things with God. And, and we should remember, when we, we, you do a good job of praying for the persecuted church, and we pray for them according to God's honor, but let's also ask God to have pity on them because of their suffering, the deprivation, the imprisonment, the family separation, the poverty. Lord, remember them. Have pity on them. And destroy their persecutors and destroyers. Let us learn to pray passionately as Job does here. And then as we enter into this new year, review these lessons. The first place I've already said, think on your frailties. That's what your afflictions are designed to do. You're not made out of stone. Is it not remarkable that the slightest little cold germ can lay us down and, and make us little weak, as, as helpless as babies in a crib? And God sends those coals, the simplest thing, uh, just to remind us of this frailty. And so let your afflictions remind you that you cannot live in your own strength. You must live constantly in dependence upon God. This morning when I took my supplements, I was mindful. I pray, Lord, make these supplements work. They don't work if you don't make them work. Whatever it is uh, that, that you... Where you find yourself in these trials and afflictions, Lord, remember, remember me. I cannot live in my own. I'm physically frail. I'm spiritually frail. Second, as we said last week, in 2023, think often about death. Remember what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapters. It's better to be at the funeral than a wedding party. It's useful for us to think very graphic terms here of what happens to the body, the separation of the body and soul, the inevitability of death, that it's final, it's irreversible. And so uh, think about death, that your soul will be prepared for death. You won't fear it. You'll rest in Christ. But then beyond that, think about heaven. Meditate on what is awaiting us in heaven. Again, we come back to 1 Thessalonians um, no, to me, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, uh, verse 16. We do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decayed, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So we look not at things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're passing, but the things that are not eternal uh, but the things that are not eternal. For now we know that the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. As much as we have put it on, we'll not be found naked. 
For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groaned, being burdened, because we did not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. That's what awaits you. Christ said, he's gone to heaven to prepare a place for you. I don't quite know what all that entails, but I know that what it entails is that he is, through his perfect work, in humiliation, now in exaltation, preparing each of us for the reality of this eternal dwelling. And so think about it. Ask God this year to give you a greater longing and delight in the realities of heaven. As you come to the Lord's table, ask him. You know, I was really struck with the fact that Christ prayed for us that we will see his glory. Now, I don't think about that. I don't have any great longing to see Christ's glory, but that's his prayer. He wants us to see his glory. And so pray that God will give that to you. And then let your heart break for those around you who actually are hopeless as they live under the wrath of God. Remember, this is one of our great purposes of being as Antioch Presbyterian Church. It's to see men and women, boys and girls, families brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the greatest reason for that is God's glory, but we should love our neighbor. You think about the hopelessness of life apart from Christ. And let that motivates you in your prayers and in our work of evangelism and your personal contacts that you'll have that God gives you every day. So we come now to the Lord's table, and here the Spirit will reinforce all of this for us. We must have this food. It's like limbus that were given by the elves to uh, the band in Lord of the Rings. It was a great food, and it would strengthen them in danger and in duty. This is our limb. This is, this is great food. It's spiritual food, and it's effective. It's effective. And then what's preached here in this supper, that Christ died for you and was raised for you and lives in you. Uh, glorious things that he speaks to us now and feeds us with himself at the table. Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, this message from Job, Lord, these uh, lessons for us in the new year. We're surely each going to be afflicted. May we be conscious of what you're doing and be actively engaged in the meditation on these things that you've set before us, Lord. Prepare us now to come to your table that we might indeed feed on Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.